Good afternoon. It's Friday the 23rd of October 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, uh, well, we'll get straight on. Boris, of course, was uh, giving a briefing yesterday. There he is. Uh, he began by thanking Rishi for measures that were protecting people's livelihoods and protecting jobs. And I wonder, is that uh, what was really going on? Well, the longer this stuff goes on, uh, the more we seem to be, or we can at least ask the question, are we heading for universal basic income? Because it's certainly beginning to look that way. It drags on and on and on. Government support uh, continues. Uh, and of course, Rishi, uh, the, the furlough scheme supposed to end at the end of uh, this month. Uh, Rishi then put in another uh, interim uh, support package, which wasn't quite so good. So let's have a look at... Uh, at what is actually uh, going on here. So first of all, uh, Rishi's package, here it is. Uh, the furlough scheme, what did that look like? Well, it uh, had 20% uh, money coming from the employer, 60% coming from government, and a salary drop of 20% for anybody that was put on furlough. Uh, so they were only getting 80% of their salary in total. Uh, then uh, he has now put in a system for tier three and for tier two. So for tier three, uh, there's no contribution from the employer. The government's paying 67% of uh, people's salaries, and therefore there's a 33% drop in your salary. It's if you're in a tier three area. And if you're in a tier two area, well, you only get government support in a tier two area if you're at least working 20% of your normal hours, so that your employer is paying that 20%. Uh, then there's a 4% employer contribution on top of that for any hours that you're not working. Uh, then the government's paying 49%. So that means it's a 27% drop in salary. So people, uh, Patrick, being trained uh, to, to see less income coming in each month if you're effectively furloughed. Uh, and if you're in one of these tier two or two, tier three areas and you can't uh, go to your normal employment. But the key point is here, the government support continues. This latest package, 11 billion pounds. Uh, and many people beginning to ask, well, where's the money coming from to pay for it? But of course, uh, with UBI, it just goes on forever. It's, uh, it's not just that you have a salary cut. Uh, it's that the, the major contributor to your income uh, goes from being a private company or a business to the state being the major contributor to your income. So, Which, I, of course, is a feature of UBI. Yeah, the, exactly. The the day, yes. So it's conditioning you to sort of the, 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 you know, the nanny state nanny state will look after you. And, and by the way, I would like to see some reciprocity. I mean, a lot of people have remarked that why don't the government employees take a 30% haircut uh, during this period just to show solidarity uh, with the people. Uh, that would be a nice gesture, wouldn't it? Uh, I don't think that's going to happen somehow. <laughs> I, the other thing I should say, of course, is that there's a maximum payment on this uh, of £1,541.75 a month. Um, so, uh, so it caps off. It, it uh, does cap off, yes. It's not a, that's not a, a massive amount of income for a lot of people, considering what their overheads are these days. Indeed. Uh, now, let's uh, just uh, bring Sky News onto the programme. I say to Sky News, uh, well done for finally catching up, because, of course, we were reporting this uh, on this programme on Wednesday. But the headline here, uh, coronavirus not among 10 most common causes of death in September. So let's just remind ourselves what we were talking about on 
Wednesday because uh, uh, the excess mortality graph that we uh, were putting up earlier in the year, we've updated here. So uh, this brings the, the figure straight up to date. Uh, we can see the peak in April and May around uh, beginning in week 13. Uh, and we can see the red line there, uh, which is the uh, all-cause mortality for England and Wales. The orange line is the five-year average. Uh, and the filled area is what we believe are uh, lockdown deaths. There's the date of lockdown. Uh, so those are lockdown deaths. And the point we were making on Wednesday was, well, actually, everything that's happened since is absolutely normal mortality. There's no pandemic. Now, uh, of course, people saying that, well, the all-cause mortality in England and Wales is above the five-year uh, five average. Uh, well, before we come on to why that is, uh, and we are going to say that there's no excess mortality, no pandemic at the moment, let's just remind ourselves what the most common causes of death are at the moment. Cancer, dementia, heart disease, uh, stroke, and, and fifth in the list here, COVID, or well, fifth in my list, but that's not fifth on the list. Uh, COVID, 29 daily deaths on average at the moment, uh, 450 daily deaths from cancer at the moment. I've noticed, Patrick, that the, uh, on TV we're starting to see advertisements uh, encouraging people to make sure you go to your doctor and get uh, early signs of any kind of cancer, any lumps, any bumps, any bleeding. Make sure you go and see your GP straight away. Uh, obviously, the idea that, uh, that people are dying in their homes uh, is starting to hit home. Seven months later. Uh, the penny drops. Well, exactly. Yeah. Uh, now, the argument is that this this winter, the NHS is not, not going to reorient purely towards uh, COVID. It's going to continue to provide all the normal services that it provides. But of course, it isn't possible for the NHS to do that uh, because it has such a backlog that has come from the April-May period. Record-breaking backlogs. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And so, so that is the case. Now, uh, on the graph that we showed a second ago, the showed that all-cause mortality uh, a little bit higher than the, uh, I mean, minuscule amount, but still a little bit higher than the, uh, the five-year average. Uh, we also, uh, on Wednesday, were making this point, where are people dying at the moment? And we can see that people in hospital, uh, it's below the five-year average. The blue line there showing uh, the number of people dying in hospital uh, in week 41, and the green line showing the five-year average. Uh, this is for people in care homes, again, uh, currently below the five-year average. But where we are seeing excess mortality relative to the five-year average is people that are dying in their own homes. So what does that, uh, what does that tell us? Uh, well, what that absolutely tells us is that uh, the, the reason that the government is, or at least the, the, the advertising about cancer and getting help from your GP is uh, the government recognizing that they have absolutely killed people over this past lockdown period. Um, people dying in their own homes because they will not or they cannot get the uh, medical treatment that they need from the NHS. So so it's, it, that's kind of proof, uh, if you will, about the fact that the NHS is not um, uh, giving the service, it's not uh, giving access to care, or it's not providing the service that it normally does. Otherwise, you wouldn't be seeing that spike in home deaths. Is that, is that correct? That, that, that is a fairly reasonable assessment of mm -hmm. it. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. So there's really no question about it. The, the, the data doesn't lie. The numbers don't lie. Exactly. Now let's uh, let's move on to biosurveillance, uh, which is what we're calling this. And well, what have we got here? A sewage plant. Uh, well, you'll be glad to know that the government uh, has started a project. Well, it started the project actually in June, but it has confirmed its results now. Uh, so it's successfully detecting traces of coronavirus in sewage. 
uh, providing an early warning for local outbreaks across the country and it is sharing this data with Track and Trace. So let's have a look and see what they were saying here. Uh, it says that the project has already worked successfully in an area of, in the southwest of England where sewage sampling data showed a spike in coronavirus material despite relatively no num low numbers of people taking tests. Uh, so DEFRA, the Environment Agency and the Joint Biosecurity Centre are all collaborating uh, on this programme uh, and this is going to become a UK-wide uh, programme eventually because they are going to involve the Scottish Government, Welsh Government and various academic projects as well. Uh, and this particular testing is being led by the Enver uh, Environment Agency uh, at their Starcross Laboratory in Exeter. Uh, so as I say, this was first announced in June uh, and it is now proven uh, that fragments of genetic material from the virus can be detected uh, in these circumstances. So let's have a look and see what uh, uh, George Eustace was saying about this. This is a significant step forward in giving us a clearer idea of infection rates both nationally and locally. Uh, he went on to say particularly in areas where there may be large numbers of people who aren't showing any symptoms and therefore aren't seeking tests. Uh, and uh, right, sorry, that's a duplicate. I do apologize. Now. So this is the key point, isn't it, Patrick? Uh, the testing narrative isn't, it, that, that narrative just isn't uh, grabbing people. It's being challenged too often. Uh, and They've recognized that the PCR testing is hugely flawed and they can't keep a lid on the fact that, you know, using that as your main testing battery is a, is a, is a complete fraud uh, on the part of the government, right? That, that's, that's it. So, but on top of that, if they run X number of tests and they get Y results from that, that's clear. There's data released. People can analyze that. They can make assessments about this. Mm -hmm. But analyzing people's poop, right, <laughs> because this is what they're doing. Go, going into the sewer system with a PCR machine? Right. That, that is going to simply, well, exactly. <laughs> but that, that is going to simply produce a result for an area and as a whole. You don't get any, you know, how much uh, stuff do people generate as individuals? How do you actually assess how, how far that has gone uh, in a population? Uh, these, these are very it's interesting It's very arbitrary, questions. isn't it? They can make any narrative out of this that they wish. So you're saying the PCR tests have failed, so now they're diving into uh, to the sewage. That, that's my allegation, to, and to, I would like to yeah. see somebody refute to, that. To drive their narrative. Yes. So, so, so they've really, I mean, this is the final straw, isn't it? <laughs> it is. <laughs> I don't mean to give you a bad image there in your head, but yeah. this is the final straw. It is, it is. So let's just uh, look at what they said here. I've mentioned this. Uh, the program, which was first announced in June, has now proven that fragments of genetic material from the virus can be detected in wastewater. So we have an acknowledgement from the British government that by analysing wastewater and waste products, you can identify whether there was uh, genetic material from this particular virus in that material. So what does that tell us then, Patrick? If we look back, we reported this at the time. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 traces detected in Barcelona wastewater from March 2019. And we have another one here. Uh, Brazil finds coronavirus in sewage sample in November 2019. Uh, and this, of course, months and months before uh, there was any lockdowns or any threats of lockdowns or any acknowledgement that there was a pandemic or any of this kind of stuff. So, so our, the government can't have it both ways. Uh, were these, was this genetic material found in sewage uh, in, in Spain in March 2019? That seems to be what the, that seems to they're be the valid, case. They're validating that now, aren't they? They're certainly admitting that that that, that result uh, is valid. It looks like. So if that's the case, then we've been living with the coronavirus for a couple of years, 
uh, but we haven't been locked down and we still managed to survive uh, somehow as a human species and travel and work and you know earn your own wages and things like this. Uh, so, so the question is then, what is, what is Man Matt Hancock going to be doing at this point? Well, what, what, you know, what's going to happen, Mike? What's going to happen? Are we going to have a big, long swab and go into people's houses and stick it down their toilet bowls to check for COVID? Well, at the, at the NHS Test and Trace Special Secret Training Center, Special Secret, Matt Hancock has been training on this very thing. Here he is, Mike, with a long swab. He's getting ready. And so he wants to make a good example and be the one out on the front line. So Matt Hancock could be showing up at your door with this uh, thing, this, this long swab, to test for you know, COVID going into the sewage system. So Because obviously you have to be able to trace, track and trace where the COVID's coming from. And the best way to do that is to take a long swab, this is according to Matt Hancock, and shove it down the toilet and see how far it goes and just see what you can get out. Yeah. It's, all, it's very forensic. Everything is above board. Absolutely, you should trust everything that uh, health secretary is doing. They, they haven't announced yet whether there are going to be any rapid results from these types of tests. But anyway, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Right. Now, uh, speaking of biosurveillance or surveillance in general, because, of course, the, the surveillance agenda moves on a pace as we continue, uh, we now uh, have more surveillance uh, with respect to uh, jobs. Uh, and, uh, well, the government looking to get access to people's bank accounts to make sure that there are no people cheating uh, universal credit. Um, so uh, I just wanted to highlight that because that's another move towards the surveillance uh, agenda that they seem to be pushing forward as hard as they possibly can at the moment. So less privacy, more government involvement in your life, more government interference, uh, and uh, less rights, less privacy. So that seems to be a trend. So this is all under the under the color of, of the pandemic, really, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. Now, uh, if you like what the UK Column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. And Patrick, uh, you were on the program on Wednesday uh, promoting a, a little uh, video uh, report that you've done on the US election. Well, it's quite an in-depth uh, video report, actually. So uh, go up to, you can watch this hopefully at the uh, UK Columns website, but it's breaking down the US elections by battleground state. Uh, this is the first of a series of reports. Uh, we'll have other short reports coming out uh, subsequently. So. Uh, do, do check us out up at 21st Century Wire and also at the... Uh, yeah, it'll be on the front page of the UK Column website uh, straight after this uh, this program. Yeah, so if you want to know what's going on in the, in the sort of the weeds of the US election and how to sort of cut through the mainstream analysis and see what the pollsters aren't telling you in the mainstream opinion polls, you want to watch this program. You'll get our methodology and you'll know what to look for. Oh, okay, and a quick reminder once again, AV 11.1, fast approaching, uh, begins uh, in the evening of Saturday the 31st of October and continues all day on Sunday the 1st of November. Details at alternativeview.co.uk, also at the UK Column website. And uh, we do encourage everybody to, to get involved in that if they can. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, now, council funding. Uh, good news, Patrick, uh, because here we go. Robert Jenrick, uh, the uh, Health Housing Secretary, has announced... Uh, well, re-announced. How many times have they got to announce this? Since the start of the pandemic, he said, we've backed local councils with the funding they need to support their communities, protect vital services and recover lost income. Um, so he has announced a billion pounds of additional support. Uh, this is a re-announcement of a billion pounds of uh, additional support that the Prime Minister announced earlier in the month. 
Um, and so that seems to be normal Tory government propaganda at the moment. They keep announcing, re-announcing, and then announcing again the same stuff. Where does this money come from, by the way? Uh, thin air. Thin air. Yes. Yeah. Yes, thin air. So over 900 million of this is going to be provided to councils for their ongoing work to support communities during the pandemic. Uh, and that brings the total funding provided uh, to, so far to 6.4 billion. But look, a billion, there's 11,930 councils in the country. Now, obviously, not all the councils are going to get the same amount of money. But just to put an average on this, 85 grand each, it's not really very much, is it? Sure, that's, that's one gold-plated... Uh... One year of gold-plated pension pot for uh, if you were lucky enough to be working for the council, exactly. right? Exactly. So perhaps that uh, puts some explanation on why the King of the North uh, had his fake rebellion earlier in the week, uh, because it's a national crisis and we won't defeat this virus on the cheap. Yes, yes. Well, you don't really need to defeat the virus uh, if there's no pandemic actually happening there, but uh, that fact seems to have eluded the King of the North. So. <laughs> it certainly has. Now, uh, Wales, of course, in uh, a much stronger lockdown than most uh, at the moment, uh, but it gets even better because apparently it is now law that uh, only essentials are sold in shops if your shop is allowed to be open at all. More government interference. Uh, now, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the uh, supermarkets are going to be unable to sell anything uh, outside what are classed as essentials. Uh, during the 17 remaining 17 days of this so-called firebreak lockdown. Uh, it's not clear what essentials are because the Welsh government hasn't said what they are. Mark Drakeford uh, said that it would be made clear at some point what essential goods are. Uh, so retailers not really very happy. Uh, various media today reporting that, the, uh, that uh, compelling retailers to stop selling certain items, uh, said the uh, Association of Convenience Stores and the Welsh Retail Consortium uh, in a letter. Uh, without being told clearly what is and what isn't permitted to be sold is ill-conceived and short-sighted. Or maybe it's just more messing with people's minds uh, because people don't have a clue what the heck they can go and buy in a shop or not. Why should products be restricted? Uh, give it, you know, is, there, is there any good reason to restrict the sale of, of products? Are there people dropping dead in the street right now? Uh, no, the, well, the argument goes, of course, you've got, to, you've got to limit the number of people in the store and people need to be in the store for as little time as possible. So they re really only should be going in to buy what they absolutely need and not, mm. not things that they don't need. But the, the key thing here is that, that under this uh, so-called law, uh, that, that anybody that's sort of a supermarket that's selling things that are viewed as essential and also view, viewed as non-essential, they can only stay open if they stop selling the non-essential stuff. So supermarkets have got to go around and, and what? Slap a big non-essential badge on any, any items on the shelves or they've got to remove stuff from the shelves. It's, it's not really clear. Is pressure being put on Wales? This is just a question uh, that maybe for our, our, our viewers as well. Is pressure being put to bear on Wales for some reason? They're being made to heal. Uh, for some reason, is it because they took a more liberal uh, approach uh, to to lockdowns earlier, or allowed people to you know, you know go without masks, for instance? Remember during the summer, Wales didn't have any restrictions on, and shops on masks, uh, well, and all of a sudden now this is coming. Is is there? Do you think there's political or uh, pressure from London being? being put down on Wales? Well, no, because because Wales actually very quickly uh, moved towards quite a draconian situation. So so people in Wales were not allowed to move more than out of their local 
uh, area, for example, they weren't allowed to be more than five miles away from home at some point during the summer lockdown, uh, which which wasn't something that we saw in other parts of the UK. So so in some areas, the Welsh government imposed some really draconian mm. stuff, much worse than. But in other uh, in other, other places, places, there was nothing. Mm. So, uh, but I, th I just thought that was interesting. Is there money involved? Perhaps uh, is there money coming from? Uh, eventually promises of, of cash coming from London. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. Why are people adopting all of these different pro uh, policies? Well, well, one of the reasons people are adopting uh, lots of different policies is that they're all demanding their, the, the power to do so. So what we're seeing is a, is a regional, uh, regionalization process, a balkanization of the UK effectively, where, where each of the, the, the so-called nation governments, the devolved authorities are all playing their own, own game. But indeed, we see that with the cities. We see that with the regional authorities as well. Mm. Um, and so we're seeing a, a, a devolution process uh, where everybody is trying to uh, is on a power grab, basically, and they're all wanting to be funded properly for it. Mm. And that's what the, that these various announcements about uh, money going to local authorities is all about, uh, because, of course, if they get the money, uh, that gives them the idea that they have the right to to then uh, decide uh, how you know impacts on people's lives. So what happens when the state goes bankrupt eventually? Because this isn't sustainable. So this whole situation, this fake uh, emergency, this fake crisis, is draining bu uh, budget, national budgets all over the world. So it's the perfect pretext, Mike, for a knight in a shining armor to come riding over the uh, horizon in a white horse with big IMF. Uh, possibly uh, on their yep. shield uh, and then be handing out money to the regions, to the city-states, to the devolved authorities and not to central government. That's certainly a possibility. That would be a massive coup if that were to happen. Yes. Well, it's not. it wouldn't be unexpected if it did, Patrick. Not, not based on the reporting that we've been doing yeah. for the last few years. Resilient cities, uh, global parliament of mayors, yes. all of these sort of... Uh, uh, institutions, institutions yeah. and international uh, NGO bodies uh, at a global UN level. Uh, well, the other fraud that uh, keeps on giving, of course, is Brexit. And Michel Barnier back in the UK uh, yesterday uh, to, to continue the talks. So the talks, of course, uh, the headlines last week were that the talks had stalled. Uh, and yet he's back again for uh, the resumption of trade talks. Now, I put trade in inverted commas here because, of course, uh, this is this whole thing is a fraud. This is not simply about trade uh, and it isn't really about Brexit. And in fact, if you uh, watch uh, David Ellis's uh, report, the David Ellis report from yesterday, uh, you'll understand exactly why, uh, because the point that was being made in the David Ellis report uh, yesterday was that there is legislation which was repatriated to the UK as a result of the divorce agreement, which is on the British statute books, which will not change after the uh, transition period ends on the 31st of December, which keeps us tied into, uh, particularly in defence, uh, keeps us tied into the EU. Uh, so there is no Brexit while this type of legislation still exists. And you've got to remember that the Great Repeal Bill, as we've highlighted so many times on this programme, the Great Repeal Bill, which was supposed to take us out of EU legislation, put all the, the full body of EU legislation on the British statute books. And unless each of those uh, pieces of legislation is repealed, uh, then we stay in sync with the EU. And this is absolutely key to these trade talks, these so-called trade talks. And just to, just to remind everybody, 
that these are not just about trade. This is the framework for the EU-UK future partnership. Uh, institutional arrangements on the left, we've got the economic partnership. On the right, we've got the security partnership. The security partnership is never spoken about in the UK. It is absolutely spoken about in the EU, but it is 50% of whatever the future relationship is going to be. Now, uh, the UK is claiming that it's uh, reorienting itself back towards the United States. We've had the Atlantic Future, Future Forum that we've been talking about earlier in the week going on this week. Um, and of course, there is a little bit of that, but nonetheless, uh, we are still going to end up in a deeper relationship with the EU in the future than the one that we had before, but without the veto and without the treaties that we were in before. So the economic partnership there, uh, you can see what it is on screen, uh, but the defence, this isn't just about defence, it's about security, it's about foreign policy. It is what, what is being negotiated at the moment and what is not being discussed by the mainstream press at all is massive. How much of that graphic there, Mike, represents or reflects uh, David Cameron's uh, February 2016 white paper, the best of both worlds? Uh, quite a bit of it, yes, quite a bit of it. And, and, and the, question, the question that uh, we've been asking and I've been asking in particular is, um, what is Britain's role going to be here? Uh, because if, if you go back a couple of years, if we just focus on trade for a second, um, if we go back a couple of years, what was the really big uh, trade news that was, that was the negotiations over the, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, TTIP, that because of, uh, because of you know, refusal by communities to accept it, that was sort of dropped. But actually what seems to be going on here is Britain positioning itself in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean between the United States and the EU. Uh, and we're going to probably, possibly end up with something very similar to TTIP at the end of the day. Airstrip one. Airstrip one, absolutely. A way station for the United States. <laughs> but, but look, uh, just to put this briefly back on screen again, the security and defense and foreign policy aspect of this can't be understated. People have to get to grips with this. Uh, and uh, we, we need to keep pressure on MPs. Uh, now, if you watch David Ellis's program uh, from yesterday, it's on the front page of the UK column uh, at the moment. Uh, it's, it's explained very clearly why MPs don't get it. Uh, and you've got to watch that, I think, if you want to understand this and challenge your MPs on this issue. They've intentionally made it so complicated uh, and tied in so many different knots that you know, even the uh, elected officials, most of them have no clue really what they're reading half the time. Well, the, the main problem is, of course, they're relying on briefings from the Parliament, the House of Commons Library, and briefings from officials. And policy uh, exchange. And, and they're, yes, and they're not being given the full picture. Yes. Um, so. Well, speaking of trade, Mike, uh, and speaking of the special relationship with the United States, this turned up uh, in the Telegraph uh, just uh, recently here. This is a, a special op-ed here by Saji Javid. Britain would be better off with Joe Biden, says Mr. Javid. Uh, hold on, hold on. Is he not a Conservative Party member? Supposedly, yes. He does sit on that bench, Mike. He does sit on that bench. But uh, like so many sitting on that bench, we do wonder uh, what they actually are. But uh, anyway, he says here, I was a great supporter of Republicans under Ronald Reagan. But today, it's the Democratic challenger who best embodies his great legacy. <laughs> so he's saying basically, that Javid, get this, Javid is saying that Joe Biden embodies the legacy of Ronald Reagan. And what's amazing is that you read this, this piece is qu quite extraordinary. I do encourage people if they want to uh, confuse themselves and have a good laugh at the same time, 
do check this out. But uh, here, let's look at some of the things that he's saying here uh, in this. Uh, Britain's relationship with the U.S. is bigger than our respective leaders. And a Biden administration would quick, quickly realize that Boris isn't the British Trump some claim him to be. When it comes to policy, Biden will find he has more in common uh, with the Johnson government than uh, Trump ever did. So he may not single us out for unique treatment, but in reality, neither did Trump. What does he mean by that, Mike? Uh, well, I think, first of all, it's very, very interesting that he's suggesting that uh, a left-wing liberal would find more in common with what's supposed to be a conservative prime minister uh, than Trump would. Uh, and But he, he's talking about uh, he may not single us out for unique treatment. Uh, they, of course, what he's talking about there is the, the special relationship. Mm. And, and under Trump, well, what has happened to the special relationship? What is the special relationship anyway? It's really the, the deep states of both the United States and the UK and their relationship. The five uh, eyes. Intelligence communities yes. uh, and, and our NATO, security. The yeah, five eyes. This kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Um, so there's there's been a disconnect in the United States between Trump and his intelligence communities and his, uh, his, his military. Uh, high-level military. I'm not talking about the the, the boots on the ground here. And the British intelligence establishment playing such a pivotal role in trying to basically oust him from office uh, via Christopher Steele yes. and all of that drama that went on with regards to Russiagate. Britain played an absolutely pivotal role. At least British agents of influence and operatives mm -hmm. did uh, in that case. But uh, Javid goes on uh, to wax lyrical about uh, the, the Joe Biden here. In fact, uh, when it comes to trade, foreign affairs, and moral leadership, uh, we might find Biden uh, to be a far more dependable ally. Uh, moral leadership? We're talking Hunter Biden emails, uh, this this kind of moral leadership? Or are we talking Getting the, the allegations of, of sexual impropriety? Uh, all, of, all of the above. We'll, we'll get on to Hunter Biden's emails and Joe Biden's actual involvement in that story uh, as well in a minute. But uh, he rounds this off here as vice president of a pro-trade administration. Uh, Biden was a vocal supporter of the original Trans-Pacific Partnership and a keen advocate for the rules-based international order, uh, AKA whatever we say the rules are at any given moment and whoever's strong enough to enforce the party line. That's what he means by the rules-based international order. So we'll, we'll rely on an independent trading un uh, nation. So that's this is where his position is. Uh, on, on this, and it, this is a fascinating piece, but uh, really you come you come out from this piece, Mike, wondering, um, you know, who is Asaji Javid? Like what, or is, it's just a complete uh, uh, menage of different uh, things woven together, liberal, conservative, bit of neoliberal, neoconservative, mm -hmm. I mean, so it really, it kind of shows what a farce uh, the modern uh, left-right paradigm mm -hmm. uh, has become. And, uh, you know, there, there's some people that argue that the, the Tory party has, long abandoned conservatism a long time ago and it's just basically a, a bin full of raving loony Trotskyites at the moment. And if you look at what's happened uh, with lockdown and the way the state's behaving, so there's a few people might argue with that. But uh, anyway, moving on swiftly, uh, just to remind people, there's uh, uh, Sanjid, the big uh, Joe Biden supporter there, with John Bolton. So these are two never-Trumpers here and I think this is what it's really about, this kind of metastasization um, from, from the Republican Party and from conservatives who just don't like 
Donald Trump mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason. But what it really is is these are globalists. These are globalists who see Trump as a threat mm -hmm. uh, to the neoliberal hegemonic world order post-World War II. And uh, so we'll see uh, where this, these trends are going here. So what's happening here, Mike? Uh, well, this is the Telegraph. This is the Telegraph's U.S. editor, Ben Riley smith uh, And, uh, well, as you can see, the headline is U.S. election, four reasons to pause before declaring Donald Trump cannot win. Uh, and really, this is a point you've been making for a little bit of time here, that, that the question is, is Donald Trump really going to lose? Because the, the polls have been suggesting that he's been behind. Uh, so he's, uh, this uh, guy, Riley Smith, has been heading over to these various battleground states. Uh, and uh, he's predicting that uh, Trump will storm to victory, uh, that uh, he's nervous enough uh, that uh, it's time to identify factors anyone certain of a Biden, Biden blowout should uh, bear in mind before putting it all on blue. So he's talking about the economy, he's talking about enthusiasm, he's talking about delegitimizing Biden, he's talking about the voting process. Anyone would think he had seen your video uh, bef report before he... Uh, before he wrote this article, because he seems to be hitting many of the same talking points. Uh, and uh, I'm quite surprised uh, that, that he is. Yeah, and well, we, so we talked about this last week, and we've also made similar comments on previous weeks. We've always tried to stay ahead of the curve uh, on what's really going on. And what I explained in our uh, election edge report, Mike, is that uh, you can't look at national polls. You can't look at uh, national opinion polls and have any concept or idea of what's going on in the United States. You need to do the hard work and look at state-by-state state basis. And every mm -hmm. state has a different kind of demographic makeup, different political dynamics going on, issues are affecting people differently. You have to look at the electoral college uh, strategy and not national polling. If you look at national polling and opinion polls, you're going to be totally lost. And guess what happened? Those same polls said Hillary Clinton would win by a landslide mm -hmm. in 2016. And guess what? It's repeating itself again, the same exact pattern. So here's one of the big drivers uh, is postal votes. So this was announced uh, recently. So more than 47 million uh, Americans have voted early in the 2020 presidential election. So this is more already at this point, at this date, uh, than in 2016 in total. So and there's more postal votes coming in. However, uh, it's, it's a tremendous amount, but not nearly as much, not nearly as much as what was anticipated uh, beforehand. So if you think the uh, Democrats really pushed hard to get their people to vote by post and really sowed fears about COVID-19 uh, contaminating polls and it's dangerous to go and vote out in person and the pandemic, et cetera, that was the Democrats' main campaign. They're still going with that mm -hmm. right now and they're fighting in the courts to extend the deadline of voting till up to 10 days after the election if you postmark uh, your ballot by election day on November 3rd. So that's just opening the door to a, a huge potential uh, amount of chaos. We'll cover some of that uh, in the Election Edge uh, programs uh, that we're going to be producing in the next couple of days, Mike. But so, so this is uh, the early voting has come in. But guess what? There's huge problems uh, with the postal vote. And this is a very controversial subject. It's very complicated. But here's a good explanation as to why uh, this is a massive a problem here. So American going postal. So America could go postal as a result of this. Look at this. This came from the Election Integrity, Integrity Project in California. Uh, and so what they're doing is looking at, they're analyzing the uh, massive amount of potential irregularities with regards to postal votes. In total, 439,777 questionable 
mail in ballots and they go on here uh, to sort of explain all the different categories where they found massive irregularities and we're talking a huge amount but this just goes to show you um, the problems here likely deceased relocated registrants uh, with mail mailed in ballots so that's one example you know like dead people basically mm. uh, receiving ballots and so there's that problem there uh, there's other irregularities that they're looking at as well uh, one of them is uh, yeah, duplicate registrations mailed in two or more ballots. So just endless amount of problems with this. And so they flagged up uh, these issues. And this is just in one state, mind you. Uh, think about repeating this problem times in you know, many other states, up to 50 states potentially. So this is huge. This is why universal postal voting is a bad experiment to do in, in one general election. And they've used COVID-19, they've used the pandemic uh, in order as the pretext to put this, to move the goalposts basically uh, on election day. And this is what a lot of people are flagging up. Now, will they be able to stop it? This is the question. So what, what, what are they hoping for? Well, it could be something along these lines. And if you read into, you'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, Mike, but uh, this is Gene Sharp, Dictatorship to Democracy. This is the handbook for color revolutions, basically. So this sort of chaos that the United States uh, CIA, for instance, that British intelligence and that other uh, European powers have used overseas in order to topple uh, countries and governments they don't like, these same techniques are now being deployed, it looks like, uh, in the United States itself in this election. Here's another one of his books here, The Potential of Civilian-Based Deterrence and Defense, and here's Civilian-Based Defense. So this is, G this is Gene Sharp's life wor life's work is to uh, show how activism can overthrow governments. And so he was highly touted during the Arab Spring and the Occupy movement uh, as well. So this is, uh, this, this is a reality. So, and, and you're seeing other reports that are saying similar things. Well, frankly, I am absolutely staggered by this from The Guardian. The headline is Trump may try to steal the election. Uh, we need to start preparing for that now. This is from Ashley Dawson. Now, I've seen Ashley Dawson uh, referred to as a Frankfurt stool, School ideologue. Uh, but anyway, they are t a teacher at uh, City University in New York. Uh, and this article, you know, the whole argument about Trump at the beginning was that there was Russian uh, interference in, in a foreign election. This article is a disgrace because it is directly calling for uh, violence on the streets. Um, what are we talking about here? They're, they're talking about anti-Trump forces needing to gear up uh, public discussion on a plan B for defeating Trump if he claims victory in the elections. So... If Trump decides that he, if, if the result is that he has won and he claims victory, then uh, they need to get people out. Who are they going to get out? They're going to get out the Black Lives Matter, climate justice campaigners, immigration rights activists, uh, teachers and workers unions, mutual pandemic aid organizations, that these guys all have to uh, begin readying their members to resist what they're describing as a coup. So any suggestion that Trump has won Mm -hmm. The election is being described as a coup here, uh, and they need to get together as a united force, according to this article. Uh, they need to study the manual for trainers, helping groups in a pre-coup situation, which is written by Richard K. Taylor. Uh, and they're also calling for uh, government workers and unions to get organized uh, in key economic sectors, to be ready to go out and strike, uh, preparing, quote, debt strikes against what would be an illegitimate federal authority. 
And this, uh, Patrick, I have never seen an article like this in the mainstream press where somebody is actually arguing for a coup uh, uh, and, then call, and then saying that if Trump uh, wins and claims victory and tries to stay in power, that he's committing a coup. Yeah, this is a total Orwellian spin. So they're, they're basically saying that uh, a democratic result in Donald Trump's favor um, will be, is actually not illegitimate, it'll be a coup. It's Trump, uh, you know, in attempting a coup. And then they're saying that, you know, we need to stage a coup uh, to uh, undo Trump's coup. I mean, it's totally twisted, totally twisted. So they've really set up the narrative, and this is interesting. Biden has been, uh, and we talked about this in our election edge report, Biden has uh, been touting this great national majority, you know, 10, 15% lead all summer. Now we're looking at the actual, uh, uh, you know, statistics and looking at the, really the data, new registrant uh, GOP voters and mail voter registration in some of these key swing states. Mm. It's impossible uh, that the national polling is correct. So what they've done is set up a narrative that Joe Biden had this huge landslide win. He couldn't possibly lose on the day. He hasn't been campaigning, of course. He's been basically in hiding mm. for three months. No one has seen this in the history of the United States presidential elections that a, a, camp, a candidate would hide for most of the campaign. It's just unheard of. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Trump's out filling football stadiums, filling air hangars, uh, you know, getting tens of thousands of people at a time. So there's a ma massive gap, but the media is running this uh, information uh, operation for Joe Biden, so they've created this impression that he, somehow he is the legitimate front runner. Uh, when in fact he, he might actually be behind, according to the data we're looking at. So the media is going to basically close ranks, and they'll have all of these uh, you know brush fires popping up on well, they're, they're uh, November third. They're effectively talking about uh, destroying a country here. They're talking about civil unrest on a scale that we you know we maybe got a hint of it in the summer with Black Lives Matter and so on, but we uh, haven't seen anything like this because they're talking about, they're actually promoting the idea of people getting organized for this. Yeah, and I predict, and they're pulling out all the stops, every single activist group you can imagine, this is the Obama community organizing model. So they're basically pulling them all out onto the streets. And so they're gonna basically declare that they're gonna have court cases, I predict. They'll have injunctions uh, to basically uh, force recounts in multiple key swing states mm -hmm. and they are not going to be happy until they finally get so there'll be two or three recounts they'll do to the Republicans what the Republicans did to the Democrats in 2000 vis-a-vis -vis the Florida primary between George W. Bush and Al Gore that's mm -hmm. what's going to but now multiply that times five or six states then you have, really have effectively chaos you have uncertainty as to what the election result will be, even if he wins on November 3rd. Um, and uh, the other thing to mention, of course, is if we go back two weeks, uh, sorry, her name's escaped me, Speaker of the House. Nancy, Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi. Easily forgettable, though. Easily, well, I wish I could forget her, but anyway. She's Nancy, barely alive. Na Nancy Pelosi admitting uh, to the mainstream press that she had been discussing uh, the use of the military for succession in the event that Trump wouldn't leave the White House. She was actually talking about having the military entering the White House. This is, this is unprecedented. Now, let me just show you. Let's put, some, uh, let's put some reality into this. We published this on uh, September 20th. There's a, an analysis plus uh, a republication here of Mike Whitney's great piece. So a Democrat-led transition integrity project planned for post-election chaos. This is not 
theoretical. This is actually happening here. So Mike Whitney's laid out basically this, this shadowy Democrat-oriented group that's been planning on how to engineer or how to create a void of uncertainty and then chaos basically would be injected into that. We're talking about the one or two weeks after the election. Mm -hmm. So this is basically, this is real stuff. Uh, these are high-ranking people. We warned about this, obviously, in, in September. In Sunday Wire's radio show, I explain all of these different coup plots uh, for American color revolution here. Uh, and so if you want to get any up-to-the-minute uh, updates on this, Micah, go to our new live blog, 2020 Election Edge at 21st Century Wire. We've got a number of guest bloggers uh, coming in there and just giving commentary. So there's tips, uh, what's going on with the Biden case, uh, all real-time updates. So just go to 21st Century Wire Election Edge uh, there and just put that bookmark that page. Excellent. Okay, so uh, that takes us into uh, well the emails. Well, this is one of those October surprises we reported on this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the Biden secret emails. So this has made a huge splash. But you know what? It's being absolutely uh, ignored by the mainstream media. There's a total blackout on this story here and some other major media outlets and you know the Boston Herald I wouldn't call this a conservative newspaper but it's a major US uh, regional newspaper here mainstream media silence on the Biden story is scandalous mm -hmm. so it's true they've just basically blanked everybody on this story now just just briefly to remind us exactly what was in these emails well what was his emails is improprieties uh, Hunter Biden is Joe Biden's son he was gifted a, a job in the Ukraine head of a Ukrainian a corrupt Ukrainian oil and gas firm called Burisma Holdings uh, and he was taking I don't know 50 grand a month or something like that while his father was vice president and in charge of the Ukrainian portfolio of the Obama administration, so nothing to see there. No conflict of, of interest, course. no corruption. But no. in those emails, it basically, uh, there's there's an inference there that Joe Biden himself is taking a backhander. Uh, so the money was going through Hunter Biden, and then he, Joe would get his 10% or his 50%, according to Hunter Biden. Half Hunter's salary went to the big guy, quote, the big guy, which they believe is Joe Biden. But there's other things there. There's uh, uh, sexually explicit material involving underaged uh, minors in some cases that stuff's coming out as well uh, and some of his former partners have stepped forward uh, Bubalinski Mr. Bubalinski has stepped forward even last night who's delivering the evidence of Chinese graft uh, by the Bidens uh, to a Senate committee today so that will be handed to I believe Senator Johnson's uh, committee uh, on these sort of improprieties so you know the thing is you could be caught red-handed in this partisan environment and the media are totally hands-off mm. if it's their candidate they won't report on it mm. even if it's in the public interest and as Donald Trump said you have a situation where Joe Biden couldn't get security clearance if some of these things are true there's no way he could be vetted to be president um, if he's basically taking backhanders through uh, Chinese joint venture holding equity holding firms where the head of that holding firm is is one of the heads of Chinese Communist Party intelligence and I mean there's no way that the uh, the US intelligence community couldn't have known about this no they they knew about it and and so other people warned Hunter Biden of it that's that's in the new disclosures as well so we'll we'll try to break some of this down in further detail mm -hmm. maybe on the uh, special election reports uh, that we're doing here but just to show you the brazenness of of the mainstream on this one Mike look at this let's talk about deep state run media here's NPR national public radio in America this is what they had to say 
They were asked, uh, why haven't you seen any stories from NPR about the New York Post's Hunter Biden story? Uh, read more in this week's newsletter. And this is what they say. We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not real stories. And we don't want to waste the listeners and readers' time on stories that are just pure distractions. If, 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 if you have eyesight problems, we've just blown this up for you so you can read this. It's, it's not really an eyesight problem. It just seems like an incredible, it, it's an unbelievable position for any, any media organization to take. Can you believe this? We're talking about a candidate for the president of the United States. This is a real story. The FBI uh, have had this laptop for almost a year. They sat on it during the whole impeachment hearings. Mm. Okay, so it's real. Uh, the Biden's attorney tried to get the laptop back. It is a real laptop. Those are Hunter Biden's uh, files and emails and images and everything on it. So it's not a, it's, they, they put across the narrative in all, immediately all the top uh, Democrats that this is Russian disinformation. The Russians created the Hunter Biden email scandal. That's been the party line basically mm -hmm. for all the Democrats, the New York Times, all the mainstream media outlets. So that's it. And MSNBC, CNN, Russian disinformation. It's not Russian disinformation. It's real. And it involves uh, the person who is running for president. And just to clarify what you just said, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but my understanding is that, that the FBI have been sitting on this for a year. They'd still be sitting off on it, except that the, 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 the repairman who was given the laptop in the first place blew the whistle on it. He did. And they were forced to admit that, it was, that they had it. That's correct, yeah. And he's a real repairman. It's a real shop. It's in Delaware. Delaware police have now been notified uh, and are now um, looking into Hunter Biden vis-a-vis -vis the uh, disturbing material involving the improprieties uh, with underaged individuals on that laptop. So we'll see what happens. Um, you know, you, you could walk into, <laughs> literally Donald Trump joked about walking down Park Avenue or something, shooting somebody in the press or, or you know, walking, whatever. This is the situation with Biden right now, is they could do anything and it wouldn't be picked up or even looked at or criticized by the mainstream media. And so the, the debates happened uh, last night. Mm -hmm. There was a second presidential debate. They had a mute button. Uh, so the, it was much more um, congenial than the first debate, which was an absolute barroom brawl, basically. So Joe Biden versus Donald Trump last night. Go ahead and watch this online if you want. But a lot of people have remarked it is very strange how Joe Biden himself looks different uh, from one, uh, you know, media appearance from, you know, one month to the next, he looks different and even looks uh, much different. Some say he's looking, he's getting younger as he gets older. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of defying the, uh, the odds or defying age as it were. And so we're going to, you know, look at this here. This is uh, what we're calling here, Mike, uh, the many faces of Joe Biden. This is 2012. Here is Barack Obama there as vice president. That's Joe Biden in 2012. You know, very different looking Biden, I think, than what we're seeing today. Uh, here's a slightly later Biden here. This is uh, in 2018. Uh, so he's, he is um, looking very different. So a lot of people have, have said, is he getting plastic surgery? Or is he getting regular sort of nips and tucks? And so, and here he is. This is Joe in July 2019 at one of the Democratic uh, debates. So again, it's uh, the you know the bit of extra under the chin that's gone. Uh, the chin looks more chiseled. Nose looks slightly different. Definitely, the eyes have been pulled. So the wrinkles that we saw in 2012, they're not there anymore. 2018, and.
And so moving on a little bit here, this is again taking a closer look. And a lot of people have remarked like, where are the basically, where are the crow's feet? He looks the same age she does. Well, yeah, exactly. So it's, it's just strange. So yes, these people do get facelifts and yes, they do get plastic surgery, but it seems that Joe Biden's had a bit more than usual on that sort of thing. So just took a side by side comparison here. This is not the same man. Uh, in terms of his facial features, he's had a lot of work done, mm. basically. So all of these, what, the reason we're asking this question because he disappears for weeks at a time. He's almost invisible in the media. He's not available, which is totally unusual for a presidential candidate. Mm. So where has he been? Is, is, he, is he getting worked on? He needs time to, to, to heal up, to recover. All of these are sort of fair, fair play questions here. So then, you know, this was just a couple of weeks ago, September, uh, at the end of September, the first presidential debate. And again, it's just a slightly different looking Biden, uh, you know, very different, I would say, than you know, what we saw, you know, completely no wrinkles on the side. I mean, it's just weird. It's weird. His eyes are kind of like stapled back, basically. So it's the most bizarre thing. And I don't know, may maybe this is fine, but you know, the question is, you know, how much is this dangerous to your health? I mean, because you know your face will fall off basically eventually. I mean, how much plastic surgery can one person have? Are, are you suggesting he doesn't? He, his face probably won't get through four years of the presidency. I, uh, never mind it. I am saying that what I said uh, when we coined the term two years ago. I t we coined the term politics is the new Hollywood. Politics is the new Hollywood. Mm -hmm. So Hollywood is now just kind of the Hollywood stars are B-rate celebrities now. Politicians and people in politics are A-listers now. They dominate social media. They dominate media impressions, mm. not Hollywood anymore. So the amount of work in plastic surgery that you, you know, celebrities do, now politicians are into that as well because they're so image conscious, uh, basically. So it, it's kind of disturbing. But. It is. Now, uh, we'll just end on this uh, little thought because, of course, over the last couple of days, we've been talking about the Atlantic Future Forum meeting taking place in Portsmouth on the uh, floating conference center queen elizabeth and here is uh well here's jan stoltenberg and his entourage arriving at nato headquarters yesterday for the defense ministers meeting uh and their, their meeting yesterday meeting today uh and it's all about uh things affecting alliance security uh one of the four key issues is boosting the resilience of our societies and this is very strange so this is uh the nato defense minister let's have a look and see what he had to say uh, we've already updated NATO's baseline requirements for national resilience, including on 5G and telecommunications, cyber threats, and the security of supply chains and consequences of foreign ownership and control. Of course, he's talking about China mainly there. Uh, 5G and, and foreign ownership and control is, is about China and Huawei and that scandal. Uh, but he went on to say this, uh, but we must do more because our militaries rely on civilian infrastructure. Since when? This is a recent development. Uh, because our militaries rely on civilian infrastructure, services and resources, and we cannot have strong armies without strong societies. And this is really uh, he, what he's saying here is we're seeing the militarization of civ civilian institutions and the civilianization of military institutions. Patrick, we're seeing the fusion of these two parts of society because without uh, strong society, strong civilian infrastructure, we can't have strong armies anymore. And I'll just remind everybody uh, for what it's worth that of course in the last few weeks we've seen uh, the military getting involved in 
track and trace in distributing tests in Birmingham, uh, military on the streets. Uh, this merger of military and civilian, something that uh, Stoltenberg really talked about with uh, Federica Mogherini in 2015 at the European Defence Agency conference. This is a policy area that they're really pushing forward with extremely hard at the moment, and it's another one that people need to be aware of. You go back to Jan Stoltenberg's last uh, uh, statement, Mike, if you could bring that up. Um, I thought this is interesting. When you look at the language here, what is he really saying uh, in terms of you know, strong societies? What is a strong society? Is he talking, this very much reminds me of resilient yes. societies. And this is a, from the UN Agenda 21, uh, Agenda 2030, resilient cities, resilient villages, resilient towns, resilient societies, strong societies. This is, you know, uber globalist language here. Mm -hmm. And so this really kind of, to me, uh, very much alludes to global government or you know, these, this kind of top-down UN-based global governance uh, systems and language and getting people to adopt this kind of mindset, this globalist mindset. But what does this have to do with anything? What's a strong society? We used to think a strong society is one with a healthy democracy that allowed people to you know, protest in public. But we also thought of a strong society, as you say, healthy democracy, but- A free in, press. A, a free press, but independent capable, mm. able to look after itself. Yeah. What he's presenting is a, a different world. Everybody is interdependent, not independent. We can't do anything on our own. In fact, we get our strength from uh, from collaboration with, with others. Now, many people might ask why that's a bad thing, uh, but uh, in, in lockstep with that, we've got uh, some fairly anti-democratic developments in, in, and, and changes and transformation mm -hmm. of our, uh, our institutions and largely unreported by the media and largely misunderstood or not even not understood at all because people aren't aware of it uh, by the general public. So when he says strong society, he's the head of NATO, Jan mm -hmm. Stoltenberg. So you have uh, countries in the UK where they attack journalists. They attack journalists who expose the wrongdoings of NATO or expose the cheating at the OPCW, fabricating chemical weapons attacks and things like that. Mm. And European countries are weighing in on this as well, other NATO states. So that's not a strong democracy, so, but he wants a strong society. Mm. I think when he says strong society, he's, he's talking about it in the Benito Mussolini fashion, you know, with the iron fist. Yes. That's what sort of strong society he's talking about. He's not talking about strong, vibrant, tolerant democracy that where dissent is celebrated because it shows how uh, robust uh, the democratic system is mm. or the Republican system in a country. That's not what Stoltenberg seems to be interested in at all. That's absolutely correct. Well, look, we'll leave you with that thought for today. Thank you very much for joining me today. Patrick, thank you for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Hope you have a great weekend and we will see you then. Bye-bye.